all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 191 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this would be the 2008 rendition of Highway 191 episode of the SLS cast because it turns out there is a movie an actual movie made in 2008 called Highway 191 in which a weekend of booze drugs girls and rock and roll gets off to a horrible start for two teens in the summer of 1983 while en route to Flagstaff, Arizona, the wild and careless boys pass through a small town. They decide to take a detour to save time. A shortcut that would lead them to Highway 666, the Devil's Highway. This will turn into the longest ride of their lives. A night of horror and macabre that will last for an eternity on the cursed road of the Devil. And with that wonderful little bit of happy-go-lucky news, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. And you know, every single road trip I take, if I were to describe them, they would sound as exciting and menacing as that film. (laughs) Every road trip is on Highway 666 with Tim. Oh, my goodness. That is... um rather scary to know if you got onto highway 666 wouldn't you quickly want to like get off of highway 666 i mean i don't understand what situation where it would be like you know i'm gonna be super late to this wedding but i don't think this is a good idea well i mean with this with a song like highway to hell right uh, i mean maybe you wouldn't care maybe you're going to hotel california we don't know (laughs) you know (laughs) fun fact uh, there is a Hotel California in Santa Monica, but on the cover of the Eagles album Hotel California, you see what's supposed to be or what you think is Hotel California, and it is not the Hotel California in Santa Monica. That is actually a Catholic, I think it's a Catholic church in Beverly Hills. So it's it's that's why it looks kind of like a church. Interesting. Yeah. I heard it one day walking to my dentist's office and... You know, one of those big red double-decker tour buses drove by. And it's actually kind of fun when you're stuck in traffic behind one of those big tourist buses because you learn so much about the area that you had no idea because one who lives here would not take a tourist bus. Speaking of tourists and fan-type things in general, because that's the only leap I can use to make this, uh, have you dug into the new... Harry Potter experience. I believe it's uh, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Oh, the West End show? Right. They have the uh, rehearsal script is now available in novel form. And I don't know if it's a full novelization or if it's just the script. Yeah, I heard it's just the script. uh, Yeah. And, I mean, people are going crazy. They're uh, sold out at Barnes & Nobles and stuff. Everybody's, like, grabbing. I want to say it, like, just released yesterday or the day before or something like that so what so you did not get a copy i didn't because in doing my research there's going to be like the final production script version that they're going to release at the end of the run 
So why would I get the rehearsal edition? I want the one that actually gets seen, not this. Well, I think half-assed. the rehearsal edition is like it includes a lot of stuff that maybe they cut out. So it might not be as polished as the final script, but there's probably additional stuff that won't be there at the end. Maybe. Who knows? Or maybe they'll do a complete rewrite. And maybe. Have... Or you can wait another 20 years when they make the movie and you can watch. Yeah, apparently this is like the end of Harry Potter. Like there will not be any more Harry Potter stories after The Cursed Child. Like, it'll be more about Harry's little Harry, or whatever the kids are called. I don't know. <laughs> Is Harry, Harry's little balls? I don't know. <laughs> you know, and speaking of Harry Potter, I was online during lunch today, and I was reading... I, I was on some movie website, which I go to every once in a while to get the more of the... I, like, I don't read gossip columns, but I consider them more of the gossipy kind of, like... If you want to know, like, the really stupid but semi-interesting kind of guilty pleasure type information, you go to this website. It may or may not be CinemaBlend or Collider.com. But they they ranked all the Harry Potter movies, or somebody in their group rated all the Harry Potter movies, and they rated uh, their absolute favorite was Prisoner of Azkaban, but their second favorite is Deathly Hollows Part 2. And Deathly Hollows Part 1 was like the second or third least favorite or something like that. With the least, with the absolute worst Harry Potter movie in their list being Chamber of Secrets. Wow. Well, let's see here. I guess if I had to pick one, let's see. I would probably rank Deathly Hollows Part 1 as my favorite. And mm, Goblet of Fire is my definitive least favorite. Yeah, Prisoner of Azkaban's my number one. Pro- yeah, it's probably Goblet of Fire, and then following that would be Chamber of Secrets. Well, here's why. For me, uh, Deathly Hollows Part 1 was really good in terms of following the the book and really sticking to the ideas and the themes of the book. Sure, I mean it's not verbatim page by page, but uh naturally because it's just it's too difficult to do that more often than not. But in terms of really following the story and getting what the struggle was for them and understanding the power that Voldemort actually has by the time that they're doing this journey and they feel like they're going in circles you really feel that experience play out so well just like you did in the book and it was frustrating in the book and it was a good frustration you know um and i was like oh my god why didn't they just do all the movies this way and then in part two it was just like so as long as voldemort dies and harry kills him we're good right we can just do whatever the fuck we want and somebody said yes so it was kind of like what? What rest of the book? No, come on. There was you no find out it was book. it was Alan Rickman who wanted to screw over the series. So anyway, and then and so that's why I love Harry. Uh, uh, good Lord, Deathly Hollows Part One. That's my favorite movie. Um, and then Goblet of Fire is my least favorite movie because it was my favorite book. Um, and they just fucking butchered it. I mean, I almost stopped watching Harry Potter movies entirely after, after that movie, because I was so 
I don't want to say heartbroken, but completely and utterly downtrodden. Because just how could you do that to my favorite book? And it's literally the pivotal book in the entire series. When you and say favorite book, that's as in your favorite Harry Potter book. Correct. My hit favorite Harry Potter book. My favorite book of all time is Pillars of the Earth by Ken Follett. Uh, please, 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 if you ever get a chance, go read it. It is the most epic, amazing story. You should, yeah, just put everything down. Go get that and read it. Yeah, okay, first you tell me to put everything down and watch Stranger Things. Now you're telling me to put everything down again and go read... Pillars of the you're Earth. already supposed to be done with Stranger Things by now. So, see, you're just falling behind. Yeah, what do you say we get to uh, some maybe look in the mailbox? What do you think? Take a little peek in that little mail sack. All right. That's probably right there between your legs. Just look down and take a look at your sack. Yes, we're going to tickle the old sack and see if anything pops up or pops out. Yes, that's right. Checking the email box, which of course is the show at slscast.com, where you two can send us an email if you are so inclined. I look in here, and we don't have any emails to speak of, but we do have three Twitter followers to mention. And of course, if you would like to follow us on Twitter, you can do so by following at the SLScast for Twitter. Uh, first one we have here is a guy by the name of Kelvin Chambers. Uh, who is at Kelvin underscore Chambers, and he says that he's a father of twin daughters, a conservative Republican, interested in world events, politics, and sports, and he retweets whatever he finds interesting. So thank you very much, Kelvin, for the follow. Also, we have two more podcasts. It seems like our ever-growing uh, Pottern family here uh, is following us now. We've got Learning Not to Swear, which is at Learning Not, uh, which is Ted Lied, L-Y-D-E, so maybe Liddy, possibly. Uh, father of a special needs boy and a near genius girl. Hosts a podcast about the art of moving forward and you feel so very stuck. And finally, we have the Glass Half Broken podcast, which is at GHB Podcast. Uh, we've got three guys, Aaron, Colin, and Tom, talking pop culture. Um, and of course, they are hashtag Pottern Family. They have it here in their description. Uh, I think that's a pretty clever title, though. Glass Half Broken. Um, and they're out of Chicago. So... Thank you very much for all of the follows. Definitely appreciate that. And that's all I've got there. So shall we move to the actual news, sir? Probably so. <laughs> all right, then. Here we go, folks. It's the news. <laughs> Before we jump into the news, I just want to send a special little th shout out to Justin. Uh, thanks again for filling in and uh, covering me for on that Star Trek boycott. I really enjoyed uh, the input. I thought that you definitely had uh, you made some really good points, especially when it came to first contact and stuff. Matt has a secret crush on you. I do, I do. I think I'm developing a man crush over here. He wants so, you to uh, fondle a sack. Oh, <laughs> he wants you to appear. He wants you to re. Well, never mind. <laughs> but, but yeah, feel free to hit me up on Twitter anytime, uh, and we can always hash out Star Trek whenever you want. So thanks again for doing that. 
Now, to the news for real. Uh, from the LATimes.com, by way of Todd Martin's creators, fans, and death threats, talking to Joss Whedon, Neil Gaiman, and more on the age of entitlement. Uh, moving into the article. A fan at Comic-Con International here had a message for Joss Whedon, creator of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and director of two Avengers movies. We want you back. In this hyper-connected, social-media-driven age, Whedon has become a missing-in-action since spring 2015. That's when he pulled the plug on his Twitter account. In discussing the breakup to a room full of his most dedicated fans on Friday, uh, this article is from July 5th, uh, Whedon had a nuanced, complicated answer, one that speaks to the changing relationship between those who create and those who consume. The short version? It's not me. It's you. Quote... It could be something lovely, end quote. He said of interacting with fans via social media, quote, It could be something funny. It could be, hang yourself, here's a noose. When can I kill you? That's less fun. That's less interesting. Eventually, it becomes kind of a white noise. You can't remember what the dialogue was, so you stop having it, end quote. Whedon clarified that he didn't leave Twitter because people were mean to him, although, for the record, people were awfully mean to him. Rather, he found himself at the forefront of a new era of fan entitlement that for some creators has raised tricky questions of ownership. Just who deserves a say in the development of pop media? Those working to dream it up, or those paying to keep a project afloat? Quote, I would always like to have a dialogue with the audience, but at the same time you can't create by committee. End quote, Whedon said uh this article i'm not gonna go into it again but the article does briefly transition into the leslie jones issue that we talked about on the show a couple of weeks ago um and i would definitely refer you back to episode 189 i believe um so that you can listen to a little bit more of that where miranda and i had that discussion um but then it transitions into the idea of online campaigns, among which make Captain America gay, some fans argue, give Elsa from Disney's Frozen a girlfriend, cries another contingent. Of course, it needs to be noted that when companies or artists do push for more inclusivity in genre entertainment, they are met with a deafening level of resentment. See the anger over the female-driven cast of Ghostbusters. Nah, that's neither here nor there, in my opinion. But there are people who definitely did have that sentiment. Uh, it says here, though that while some instances are rooted in a genuine and important desire to see more diversity in popular entertainment, a greater representation of LGBT characters or minorities, for instance, they're still illustrative of the growing desire of fans to have a bigger say in their entertainment choices. Quote, It's a thing. It's not a bad thing. It's a thing, end quote, said author and screenwriter Neil Gaiman, who was at Comic-Con to promote an upcoming adaptation of his novel, American Gods. Quote, it's the thing that kept Star Trek going. It's the thing that brought back Doctor Who. Fans are still creators. Fans demand and make things happen. Mostly, that's great, but it can tip. And when it tips, it goes into strange places where people feel that by having watched a TV show or bought a book, they feel that you owe them something huge for having done that. Watching the level of crazy that can sometimes happen is hard. End quote. 
David Ayer, however, he is, says, quote, it is what it is, end quote, direct, uh, said David Ayer, director of Warner Brothers' upcoming Villains Gone Crazy film, Suicide Squad. Uh, quote, it's the Roman arena. It's thumbs up or thumbs down. The crowd votes. Hopefully my movie doesn't get executed in the sawdust there. But that's why the genre has the connection and the power and the audience that it does, because there's that ownership and there's that participation, end quote. Still, he adds... Quote, my hope is that we can just push the envelope a little bit and challenge people, end quote. And then he goes on to discuss the backlash that people have had. Uh, for example, Jennifer Helper, who uh, is the author of Women in Game Development, Breaking the Glass Level Cap. Um, she was with Electronic Arts and Bioware, and due to her contributions to Dragon Age Inquisition Dragon Age 2, people were like giving her death threats and stuff, and she got scared, literally bought bulletproof windows, you know, because she was... She was scared, and she says that that stuff worked for her. I, you know, it didn't happen to me, so I can't make a judgment on that, but I think maybe the bulletproof glass for her home was a little bit overboard, but maybe the death threats were that serious. I don't know. So she talks about that negative side, definitely, and then this is a very, very long article, guys, so I apologize for going so long. I've only got two pieces of news this week, and I may not even get to the next one. Moving into that... Then we have the idea where Whedon came under attack uh, for the romance between Scarlett Johansson's Natasha Romanoff slash Black Widow and Mark Ruffalo's Bruce Banner slash Hulk in Avengers Age of Ultron. The two shared an emotional exchange in the film, with both characters lamenting their inability to have children, and Black Widow was viewed by some as wanting a rather trite domesticated life. Whedon reflected on the incident when spotted in the lobby bar of a San Diego hotel. He said the relationship with the fans had changed dramatically from when he was working on Buffy the Vampire Slayer in the 90s and early 2000s. Quote, now that everybody can reach you directly, if you happen to be on social media, there is definitely a sense of not just we know better, but also we should have the right to dictate. That's mean. But I was sent lots and lots of not death threats, but more just polite inquiries as to why I have not died or killed myself yet, all because of Natasha and Bruce having a romance, end quote. Um, and he says uh, that you can't really draw a line, um, because if he could have, uh, he says, quote, if we could, we would have, I'm going to end quote there. But it then just continues to detract into whether or not the fans have a right to consume and what uh and what level of responsibility the people who produce the content have as storytellers um i think that uh you can have an idea uh, chris hardwick who is the host of amc's talking talking dead um he has this. This is actually the closing quote of the article. It says, quote, We're culturally addicted to outrage at the moment. We need to be more addicted to conversation, end quote. Now, I'm going to stop there, and I have skipped vast swaths of the article, but I just want you to get a generalized picture of the tone of the article and what it's trying to present in terms of how the creators of content feel when the consumers of their content... Um, are vehement and and sometimes crazy and death threats, which are obviously wrong. We don't, you know, we don't condone that here. At the, I believe I speak for Tim <laughs> when we don't condone that kind of behavior. Um, but I 
thoroughly and completely disagree with both the tone of the article and, to a very large degree, Joss Whedon on this. Now, I'm not saying in any way, shape, or form that he should have his vision dictated to him by anyone, because it is his vision. But the thing is, is that vision and expectation are oftentimes very, very difficult to discern. Um, and while, yeah, you do have to go with your gut, which Whedon has been quoted in this article uh, as saying that he goes with his gut on occasion and, and, and he does what he feels is right. Um, and it's worked more often than it hasn't. But these are people who have been lucky enough to have their voice heard by people who've taken it to heart and it's ignited their imaginations and it's ignited their passions and they literally are paying you to do that and once you've hit that echelon it's you you're not really doing it just for yourself anymore and i think that that's a straw man argument when people are like you know we're the creators we should have the majority say and I think to a large degree that's, that is true, but it's not an absolute once you've, once you've been accepted, once it's become part of that, um, cultural echelon. The thing is, is that it, it can be very heavily argued, and I think successfully so, that once your art, whatever that form it takes, is into the ether, you, you no longer control what it means. It meant what it meant to you, and it will always mean that to you. But the people who consume that art in whatever media or medium it is, they consume it the way that it means the most to them. And sometimes it's not what you wanted, and sometimes there is no way to take it back. And sometimes it, it's exactly what you saw. Most of the time... It's somewhere in the middle. Now, the starving artist, the person who refuses to compromise and never gives up and never gets picked up, now that's someone who does it just for them and more power to them. But when you have made it, you don't just get to do it just for you anymore. And yes, you might need to go with your gut. And yes, the fans might disagree. And yes, you might be right. You might be wrong. But to simply say that they shouldn't have a say or they should not have as much of a say or they shouldn't be vehement in their zeal for for wanting something great that matters to them, I think does a disservice to both sides. And it's really sad that it's come down to that. And someone who is so looked up and really kind of powerful in the industry coming out with that attitude it's it's like i don't know it's it's like the tipping points happen but it's not the tipping point that's made the fans go crazy it's the tipping point that says we know better despite the fact that you made me um and I know I'm rambling at this point, so I'm going to stop there. Tim, please jump in. What do you think? Yeah, do you agree or disagree? Uh, do you have your own uh, opinions on the subject? Or would well, you like me to shut up? 
<laughs> well, just look at the type of movies or the genre of movies where people have where people are super vocal about their properties that are being rebooted that are held dear and true to some a generation's heart, you know, like Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Ghostbusters, Marvel comic book stuff. When you have a large fan base and you give them a soap, not necessarily a soapbox, but you give them an outlet to where one drunken night, when they're just ticked off because their favorite comic book character didn't get the service that they felt that they deserved, you know, then those people are more likely going to say something because they know nothing is really going to happen to them. And I think it's stupid. I think I, I, I hate social media. I hate it because people can post whatever and I don't hate social media completely, but I hate social media when people can feel like what they say means something to everybody else. And I think if filmmakers, actors, actresses who do get ridiculed and harped on by these people, I think if they realize that, it wouldn't bother them as much. And I understand some of them do. It sounds like David Ayer, he's fully aware of it and doesn't bother him as much. You have hundreds of other celebrities that probably, you know, mean and ugly things are said to them. Uh, they even post pictures of them and their family, and you, you could read those comments that people leave, and, you know, some of those comments are very ugly. But you don't see those people coming back and responding harshly. So I think it's like, it's kind of like the tough skin and just kind of have to deal with it and just move on. And if you don't want to give, if you don't want to provide all this information to these fans, if you don't want to give the, all, all, you know, all these fans every single thing that they want via social media, then don't do it. You don't have to. Nobody is making you do it unless you're in some kind of contractual agreement with the studio. But then another thing that ticks me off about all this stuff, like with the Leslie Jones thing, uh, and also with Paul Feig or Feige, Feige, whatever his name is, the director of Ghostbusters, also with Dan Aykroyd, when Dan Aykroyd put in his two cents with the whole Leslie Jones thing, is that if somebody is being a critic, I'm tired of actors, directors, and other studio commentators butting in and their response is equally as harsh and negative and mean. So they're responding to meanness with even more meanness. Like I was listening to an interview with uh, the name, the director's name escapes me, but he's the guy that did the free state of Jones. And he was being interviewed by someone from NPR and they brought up the whole, you know, the movie that hasn't been getting the greatest reviews. And he, and the director was saying, well, yeah, well, I only, there are only a handful of other reviewers that, I appreciate, and those people gave me good reviews. Or if they didn't give me a good review, they actually give me good reasons, or they provide a reason, good reason, and a logical reason for the reason why they didn't enjoy the movie. But then he goes on to say, but then there are all these nerds, there are all these hack, paraphrasing, not quoting, not at all quoting, uh, but he pretty much says, like, oh, but then you have these hack commentators, the hack critics, who are in their mother's basements, these nerds with no jobs, where they just are just getting paid to write reviews and comment on other people's art and other people's work. And that is a big issue to me. It's because, so if I make a comment about a movie, if I don't like a movie that's super popular... I don't want to be labeled as that. I don't want to be thrown into, I don't want to be put into a category when it should just be, 
I mean, people just have an opinion. And unfortunately, social media and the easy, uh, the easy access to social media as an overall format to commentate just kind of makes things worse. So I guess that was a roundabout way of saying that I agree with you and I agree with Joss Whedon. You just have to look at the stuff with a grain of salt. People are going to send you death threats. Look at, I mean... Just because back in the day, back in the 90s, major movie stars would receive death threats. Nowadays, with social media again, you're getting people like Joss Whedon, you're getting people like Leslie Jones, you're getting people that aren't these major high-caliber movie stars receiving the death threats anymore. They're these kind of smaller folk, and I don't mean smaller in a demeaning or mean way, I'm just saying that they're not like these crazy celebrity e-entertainment news A-listers. You just have to... Take it with a grain of salt, move on, carry on with your day, and don't feel obligated to put everything on frickin' social media for it to be criticized. Awesome. Well, I would love for anyone to uh, have, who has a comment or would like to comment to please do so. Again, reach out to us via email, the show at SLScast. Hit us up on Twitter <laughs> at the SLScast. Uh, that is latimes.com by way of Todd Martins. Uh, the article, Creators, Fans, and Death Threats, Talking to Joss Whedon, Neil Gaiman, and more on the Age of Entitlement. Um, yeah, read that whole article and let us know what you thought. Based on time, I'm guessing that I may have blown it. So, <laughs> go ahead, Tim. I'm going to blow through, or not going to blow through, but I'm going to do uh, three pieces of news. The first one is, is a mention. I love Mystery Science Theater 3000, and as a many of you out there already know, they uh, did a Kickstarter, and they did raise enough money to make, I think, like 10 or 12 or 13 brand new episodes. Uh, and it turns out, you know, nobody knew exactly what channel they will be on. But it turns out, via io9.com, the new Mystery Science Theater 3000 is coming to Netflix. Yes, this was published on July 23rd written by Rob Bricken, and it says that The Hollywood Reporter confirms that Jonah Ray will be the new host, Felicia Day and Patton Oswalt, the new Mads, and Hampton Yount and Baron Vaught as the new voices of the bots. But then they also say this, Mary Jo Pell, Pearl Forrester, Bill Corbett, Crow T. Robot, and Kevin Murphy from the original cast will reprise their roles in the new series. Yes. I don't know what this means. Maybe they'll cameo in the first episode. Maybe they'll begin the episode. And then there will be a massive time jump and everyone will be different. We'll update you as soon as we know more, says io9.com. But again, it does reiterate that the beloved puppets making fun of cheesy movies, that Netflix has acquired the new series indeed. So look forward to that Probably sometime next year. Next up, via Yahoo Movie News, French producer Luc Besson, guilty of plagiarizing action classic. And that action classic is, in fact, John Carpenter's Escape from New York. Uh, this came out on July 29th, and it says this. French filmmaker Luc Besson has been ordered to pay Hollywood's self-styled master of horror... John Carpenter nearly half a million dollars for plagiarizing his classic 1981 movie, Escape from New York, court documents revealed Friday. 
the director of The Fifth Element and La Femme Nikita, had denied that his 2012 film Lockout copied the cult futuristic thriller in which New York's Manhattan Island is a giant prison that has been overrun by its inmates. Kurt Russell plays a government agent turned convict who goes inside to rescue the U.S. president after his plane crash lands there. An appeals court in Paris ruled that Lockout had, quote, massively borrowed key elements, end quote, of the earlier movie, according to a judgment put online Friday by BFMTV. A spokesman for Besson told AFP they were, quote, very surprised by the ruling, but the judges have spoken, and we will accept their judgment, end quote. Plagiarism cases in the movie business are notoriously difficult to prove, particularly as so many action and sci-fi films share similar tropes. In Lockout, Guy Pierce plays a wrongly convicted man who is offered his freedom if he can save the U.S. president's daughter from a jail in outer space, which its violent prisoners have taken over. Critics have long pointed to the uncanny parallels between the two films. Box Office Magazine called Lockout which Besson wrote with Irish filmmakers Stephen St. Ledger and James Mathers, a, quote, a sleek, slick, and shameless ripoff of Carpenter's Escape from New York, end quote, as well as its sequel, Escape from L.A., end quote. The mandatory website joked that this was a, quote, stealth remake, end quote. And the article does go on from there, where they go and compare the long line of similarities, according to them. For example, the heroes of both, quote, go into the prison by flying in a glider space shuttle, had to confront inmates led by a chief with a strange right arm, found hugely important briefcases, and meet a former sidekick who then dies, end quote. And there's more comparisons there. It's kind of interesting because it's not just the, it's not necessarily just the story, but it's characters. And I guess the progression of the story as well as how the character gets from point A to point B to point C to point D throughout the film. So it's very interesting. Matt, I know you do have a couple things to say about this. We did talk about this some time ago. Uh, Obviously not that he was found guilty, but that this lawsuit was pending. Yeah, we, I mean, we did the, uh, you know, our makeshift copycat throwdown uh, on on this one, but... I gotta be honest with you. I cannot believe this lost. I just, I mean, it's not the same. <laughs> it's it's not the. I mean, I don't. I, so any jailbreak movie involving anything regarding the president is now solely the domain of John Carpenter. I mean, come on, really, really. Well, it's. I think it's more the details. And where the details come up in the movie, like, I think that's where they're getting the similarities, not necessarily the overall story, but more, more of the smaller details. Huh. Well, I don't know. That just, yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's bullshit personally, but okay. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people have never even seen Lockout. I'm neither French nor that invested in it. I just think it's bullshit. (laughs) Anyway. Okay. Yep. So that's my short and sweet opinion on that. And then I want to uh, talk about this interest. Matt, have did you and your wife, or mainly your wife, did your wife watch the Divergent movies? Or no, we Allegiant movies. We read the books. Um, actually, she's not even done. She pissed me off, and I read them out of spite. And so I've read the books. I have not seen any of the movies. They looked like complete shit. 
and apparently performed like complete shit. So I don't know. Are they on the third movie or something? I don't even know. I see. I don't even know where they are. But, I think it's the um, fourth movie. I think I know the article you're about to talk about. The last movie did so bad that, according to Variety, the Divergent finale will skip theaters, launch as a TV movie, and spin off series. This is written by Brent Lang again from Variety. That's awesome. And it says this. Lionsgate is planning to wrap up the Divergent series with a television movie and a spin-off series, Variety has learned. Negotiations are in the early stages, but instead of having the, the Divergent series ascendant open in theaters next year, the studio wants to wrap up the film series on the small screen, according to an individual with knowledge of the situation. That would then segue into a standalone television series set in the same post-apocalyptic world. The first two Divergent films were box office hits, but the most recent chapter, Allegiant, stumbled when it hit theaters last spring. The fourth and final film, Ascendant, was originally scheduled to debut in June of 2017, when it would have squared off against World War Z2 and a reboot of The Mummy. The studio initially planned to start shooting the summer in Atlanta before Allegiant's box office performance caused them to rethink that strategy. Then it goes on to say that Lionsgate's television group will handle production. The idea is to finalize the storylines involving the current cast and to introduce a new cast who would then continue the series on either a traditional or streaming network. Uh, and then lastly here, it's not clear if stars Shailene Woodley, Theo James, Ansel Elgort, and others will return for the Ascendant television movie. Lee Tolan Krieger uh, had been tapped to direct the film. Apparently he directed the movie Age of Adeline. So yeah, uh, and then Lionsgate apparently had declined to comment on this article fascinating yeah that's that sucks i mean you knew something like this was going to happen i mean you're taking a risk when you're trying to adapt all these freaking young adult movies you know if you want a franchise it, it's bound to happen like i remember when the golden compass came out in 2008 the movie i thought the movie was good i enjoyed the movie but it did not do well at all in the box office, uh, especially in the U.S. It did okay overseas. But due to the whole atheism, I guess, thing with the writer of the book, it just really didn't sit well with a lot of the folks here. Uh, so not only did the movie not do as well, it went on and won an Academy Award, and they just halted production on any sequels. So... Since then, we've had the Hunger Games that did incredibly well. We've had the Twilight Saga that's done incredibly well. And I assume Fifty Shades of Grey will keep on doing okay. So it's bound. It was bound to happen again. Bound to happen again. And apparently these movies sucked so much. I think that's the issue, is that apparently these Allegiant Divergent movies didn't appeal to anybody else outside of its core book following, which were, you know, young adults or kids, I guess. So, I don't know. Matt, do you have any comments, questions, or concerns concerning this? No, I I mean, for me, I thought the end of the book series was retarded and telegraphed from a mile away. Uh, and I just, yeah, I don't, I, I didn't understand how this book series got popular to begin with. So, had it not been a rage read, um, I probably would have never have read them in the first place. So, anyways, all right. Well, then let's go ahead and close the news there. 
Um, and as we talked about last week, we have no bonus segment this week due to the number of films that we have to cover. However, next week we will be back with what I, I mean, it's basically cream of the crap, but Tim has come up with a rather classier version, creme de la crap. So we'll probably just end up renaming it to that because that's kind of funny and I like it and it's clever and yeah. But at any rate, we're going to be talking about 1979's Roller Boogie. Yes. Starring the super sexy Linda Blair. Oh, man. Post-exorcist Linda Blair. Oh, I can't wait. Can't wait. So uh, with that, we're just going to jump into the movies if that's all right, Tim. You ready? I am ready. Here we go, folks. It's the movies. All right, and this time we are doing the entire Born series to date. Hopefully, just the born series uh we've got of course the born identity the born supremacy the born ultimatum the born legacy and jason born uh so i'm assuming we're just going to do them in order correct him yeah i think that would make sense all right then we will just start at the beginning <sighs> the born identity from 2002 not to be confused with the tv movie the made for tv movie from 1988 <laughs> um, all right, so this is a uh, Born Identity, two thousand two American German thriller film. It is adapted from Robert, Robert Ludlum's uh, trilogy of novels. There are actually like thirteen or sixteen novels now. Um, Robert Ludlum only did the first three, and then actually, The Born Legacy was the first novel uh, from the other author, and that worked out so well that they just went back to. Uh, Matt Damon of of angels and born again Damons. Um, so this is uh, 2002. So this is one is directed by Doug Lehman or Lyman. Uh, it stars Matt Damon, Franca Potente, Chris Cooper, Clive Owen, Brian Cox, and Adewale Inkinue Agbaje. And I apologize if I destroyed that. Uh, <laughs> name <laughs> i thought you grew up in south africa yeah really uh, for whatever it's worth adewale um if you are familiar with hbo dramas circa 2000 um he was adabisi uh, on um oz so and I, I mean he's fantastic in that role as well so anyway uh, the books, however, the tr the original trilogy of books were in from 1980, 1986, and 1990. So these are really old books. And so they basically just took kind of a few of the characters and more or less just kind of the theme uh themes from the novels and adapted them into fully updated movies so the 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 books literally have nothing to do with the movies save the names of the uh the movies themselves and some of the characters so if you're interested in reading spy novels go and check them out we have here uh matt damon of course playing uh jason bourne uh, at least initially. And uh, he doesn't know who he is. He's suffering from retrograde amnesia. And uh, he is trying to understand 
who he is and why he is and where he is and what's going on. Uh, this sets off a chain of events that is sparking international incidents that go all the way to the top of the CIA, virtually all the way to the top of the CIA. As their, uh, as a covert spy program called Treadstone, um, has gone haywire in the form of Matt Damon or Jason Bourne. And so he has to find out what's going on and why this is happening to him. And along the way, he comes across a young German girl who's just trying to get herself a visa. Um, her name is Marie, and she is played by Franca Potente. Um, so, yeah, there you go. So that's kind of the movie in and of itself. Chris Cooper is um, plays the bad guy. Kind of. I mean, I guess you could say he's the bad guy. He's the one uh, who's trying to contain Bourne and uh, represents the evil that is the CIA who will stop at nothing to, to just shut down poor Jason Bourne who did nothing except assassinate a whole bunch of people. Anyway, but you don't know that yet, kind of. This was definitely, for its time, a remarkable spy thriller. And what was more impressive was that Matt Damon was coming out of nowhere to be an action star. Um, he definitely played the role very, very well. I actually really enjoyed the way that Franca Potente played Marie. Um, it was nice that they, that they actually went with a solid German actress um, because it, it lent credibility to the story. Uh, I, I would like to see more of her work uh, in the German field because um, I felt like run run Lola run yeah Lola, no run, run Lola want run but she doesn't really talk in that movie that one's like just running. she just runs yeah it's know. just running the whole movie um and but I would like to see more of her work from that uh, angle because while I felt she did a good job I just kind of felt that um, I was more tangled in the accent. Um, and I, and it was harder for her to come across as, I don't want to say believable, but more relatable in terms of the story and how through this speed-esque joining, um, you would find this relationship working. Uh, Brian Cox is fantastic as the, uh, as one of the heads of the CIA, who is, well, at least higher up than Chris Cooper's character of Alexander Conklin. Um, and his just bravado. I mean, he was type, pretty much typecast at this point, but I just love his bravado. He, he always just brings such a great, um, air about the characters he plays. And it's just fun to watch. Um, the cinematography was good. Uh, the shaky cam was good. And we see something that is kind of used throughout the rest of the series that I liked, which is uh, find the household item that Jason Bourne will use to defeat his opponent. Uh, in this particular one, it's a Bic pen. Uh, we move through the series. It's always something else, but he always uses something handy-dandy that's around him to defeat his opponent. And... Also, I like the shaky cam. And interestingly, 
one of the coolest things that people liked about this movie was the car chase that demonstrated, I think, if, if you ask me, the whole reason Mini Cooper happened in America, it wasn't the remake of The Italian Job. It was this fucking movie right here. Uh, <laughs> you see this Mini go and fall through Paris and everything. And what's interesting about that is uh, the movie gets so much credit for it, but it was actually the second unit director who filmed that phenomenal car chase. So... Um, yeah, and of course, also, the studio and the director had lots of problems, although it seems that Matt Damon uh, was working with the director to get their vision uh, produced, which is why Doug Lehman uh, only directs this one. We see a shift over uh, to Paul, what's his name? think of his name right paul now. greengrass paul, paul greengrass yeah we see paul greengrass pretty much take over the director's chair from there um all in all this was a really good entry to the franchise um it it drags a little bit towards this uh, between the second and final thirds of the movie but given its source material given its um uh, given given the twists and turns that it was trying to do and the way that it was establishing something that people hadn't really seen before in this style of the spy genre, I guess one 4.25 out of 5. Really good movie. Still enjoyed it. And uh, what do you got to say there, Tim? So I remember going to see this movie at the movie theater with my grandfather, and he always really liked great spy thrillers and just well-made movies that didn't have a bunch of shaky cam in it. In this movie, compared to Supremacy and Ultimatum, does not have any shaky cam, really. I mean, there's a couple moments where the camera's following Jason Bourne, like whenever he's escaping, I think he's escaping the embassy. The camera kind of follows him, but the camera is always gliding. And this was an aspect of this movie that I think sets itself apart from all the other ones. No shaky cam. You're able to focus on the characters, focus on the story, and focus on the direction. And there's no trick shots. Like with uh, all the other Bourne movies, while all the other Paul Greengrass-directed Bourne movies, things feel more real. The fighting feels more real. The punches that are thrown and the punches and the kicks that are received feel more real and more violent. It's because the camera keeps shaking and they keep cutting. It's a lot of quick edits. And so, to me, that that's kind of like a cop-out. What's great about the Bourne identity is that everything was planned out. Everything was choreographed, from the fight scenes to Jason Bourne escaping a building. And what's interesting about this movie, and we'll, I'll talk more about this eventually uh, with uh, one of the other films is that all the other films, it's all about, like, Bourne is seen stalking people a lot. Uh, he's walking around, he's trying to set up rendezvous with people, and he's stealing something, or he's planting something, or he's on the phone with somebody, or he's listening in on somebody on the phone. You see a lot of that stuff, a lot of that same type of stuff happening in all the other Bourne movies. But what's great about this one is that it's him trying to figure out who he is. And... That's when the series, to me, feels the most fresh. Because it's not relying on the suspense. It's not relying on trick quick cuts to create that suspense. It's just an all-around interesting and intriguing you know, story. And character, for that matter. Because you, too, want to know who is Jason Bourne. You know, who is he? Why is, he? Why is this stuff happening to him? But in part, that, that's kind of what detracts from, uh, from this movie. And I think it's because of its age for when it came out. Born 
keeps asking himself or asking why. He wants to know why. Why, 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 why? Every time he gets an argument with Marie or every time he just explodes when Marie wants him to talk, he just keeps asking why and it becomes a little bit repetitive. The four-minute car chase was a major highlight of this movie when it was released. I remember absolutely loving it. Unfortunately, the highlight of the movie lost its flavor over the years, I think, due to all these other big, crazy action movies with a shit ton of CGI. A lot of us aren't used to this kind of nuanced action. And watching it now, I mean, it's still great and I still appreciate it. And I still totally remember watching this in the movie theater and very much enjoying it. It just didn't have the same impact on me watching it now. So I think because of all that stuff, all that that slight negativity of the movie, you know, I think that's what's pretty much holding this movie back. But it's still a good film. And if you haven't seen it, before you listen to any of our other reviews of the other Bourne movies, stop and go check out The Bourne Identity. And hell, I mean, I guess watch the other ones. Just skip the last one. Spoiler alert, skip the last one. Because it's worth it. This is a well-crafted, well-made movie that I wish they would have gone in this direction more so with the final Bourne film. So I give this one, I don't know if it's like the nostalgic factor or just really remembering the great theater experience. And whenever it came out on DVD, watching it at home, that experience, I'm giving it a 4 out of 5. Though it probably is more along the 3.75 range. But 4 out of 5 for me. Right on. Okay, well, this leads us to 2004's The Bourne Supremacy, uh, American-German thriller film. And uh, we've got this time director Paul Greengrass, and we're starring still Matt Damon, uh, Franca Potente, Brian Cox, Julia Stiles, Carl Urban, Gabriel Mann, and Joan Allen. Uh, Julia Stiles was actually in the first one as well. Um, she's actually... Uh, the only one who's in all four of the Matt Damon movies. Um, and so we're picking up, uh, it's been a couple, I want to say it's a couple of years after the first film. And Jason Bourne has now started kind of keeping a journal, really trying to track down more, think about, trying to remember more of what's going on um, and how he came to be who he is. He's still with Marie in, uh, there in India. And he told them at the end of the first movie, if you leave me alone, I'll disappear. But if you come after me, you know, you, you have no idea what I'm going to do, you know, what I, or what I'm willing to do to take you down. So it's been a couple years. All of a sudden, there's someone who is in the CIA. This is Joan Allen. She is... Um, uh, uh, basically like a project manager, if you will. She is in charge of an operation where they are spending a lot of money to find out who a traitor is. And this traitor, um, the, basically the traitor is smart and frames Jason Bourne for uh, putting, the end, putting an end to this uh, operation that Joan Allen is running. So now she has to shift gears and she is like, holy crap, what the hell happened? They find out that you know, Jason Bourne did it. And so now they're after Jason Bourne. Simultaneously, we have the Russians who have sent an assassin, Carl Urban, to go after Jason Bourne himself and put him down, thus 
creating a neat little package for Joan Allen once she's done her uh, thing. Well, they're link. They're basically the only thing tying everything together is, um, oh, what's his face? Uh, Chris Cooper's character of Alexander Conklin, who is killed at the end of the first movie. And unfortunately for the rest of the world, the the Carl Urban ends up killing Marie by mistake. Um, I mean, collateral damage aside, he truly did mean to kill Bourne. It's not like he was sorry that he killed Marie, but, you know, whatever. She ends up dead, he escapes, and now he's pissed. And so he goes after it. Um, eventually, Brian Cox is brought back in um, because he's the only person who was above Chris Cooper's character. And we then move throughout to see what Brian uh, Cox's character has to uh, still has to bring to the table. And of course, Joan Allen and Brian Cox are going back and forth over this thing. Meanwhile, Bourne is just like. What the actual shit, motherfuckers? And he's had enough. This time, the household item is a rolled-up magazine. Um, it's this one because of the way that they... They keep trying to show how... It's a recurring theme. It's a theme that never goes away. And I get ring theory and all that stuff, but this is not a series that needed it. Oh my god, just we're so fucking thin. They just don't seem to learn. See, because Treadstone has evolved into something else, right? Blackbriar, I think, is what they're uh, getting to at this point. Um, and so they are... Uh, and so it's simultaneously, Bourne is going after them to figure out why they killed Marie, and then, of course, why all this is happening. Julia Stiles is kind of this makeshift in-between person who can actually talk to Bourne at the same time as still with CIA. Um and so they they're trying to put all this intrigue together but you really have um one overarching plot which is basically that the CIA just never seems to learn leave born alone now in the interest of those who haven't seen this movie i won't spoil the actual ending of this um but born ends up coming out on top of course cuz it's the supremacy right um and he and Joan Allen's character, I guess you could say maybe form an uneasy truce, if you will. But clearly there's three more movies, so that's really not to be. Now, plot aside, they do some, they, they, they spend so much time trying to, uh, get you through this convoluted plot because, you know, it's spy stuff, right? Um, and keep it relevant as to why Bourne should be even involved in the, at this point, that it loses its focus a lot. It loses its focus frequently. And I don't know, maybe it's just because Paul Greengrass was new to this franchise. Um, I haven't looked into his IMDb or anything to see how early in his career this movie was. But... I feel this one's more on him because the actors and actresses themselves maintain their character and the integrity of the characters very well. It's just the story and the pacing just don't mesh. I, they were, it was too, 
I think Tony Gilroy's screenway, uh, screenplay was too ambitious here. And so it just drags the movie down, makes it really slow. Still good overall, but it's just too slow. I give this one 3.5 out of 5. Um, solid entry, but not as good as the first. What do you got there, Tim? You know, I will have to agree with you. What is consistent through the series, the, actual, the first four movies, is Tony Gilroy's writing. His screenplays are fantastic. I just think my issue is the vision and how far the director took the vision. And in The Bourne Supremacy, the over I think the overall theme and story of the movie takes a back seat. And the flashy, fancy, shaky cam takes the foreground. Because the shaky cam is so much that I got sick whenever I first saw this at the movie theater. We weren't really used to seeing as much shaky cam in a movie until then in 2004 with The Bourne Supremacy. It was just insane. And again, this is when you start seeing, like, the fight scenes are more violent looking. And like I mentioned earlier, you can definitely feel the punches and the kicks more. And it's because of the quick cutting in, in the shaking of the camera. So it's a lot of these trick shots. And at the time, it's pretty cool. I mean, even watching this movie, it's still a good movie. But you can see that they begin relying on this later on, and it does become more apparent in the final Bourne movie is the reliance on the shaky camera to, you know, as a as a way to progress the narrative in some way. I don't know. Uh, but 3.75 out of 5 for the Bourne supremacy. This is when you see Bourne basically kicking ass and taking names and wanting to put an end to this without being, you know super whiny about it or anything like this so i thought it was a very effective movie i liked i very much enjoyed brian cox's character arc by the end of the film and it's and it's fun uh you know i i thoroughly enjoyed it but 3.75 out of 5 check it out awesome all right moving quickly into 2007's the born ultimatum now this movie is really interesting because it actually ties into a reshoot of the ending of the second movie um they didn't the the, the ending of the second movie uh was good but uh they felt green glass and i'm sorry green grass and uh damon felt that it could have been done a little bit better so um they convinced the studio to go with a different ending by saying look it'll only cost two hundred thousand. we can shoot it and then it'll provide us a bridge so they reluctantly said well all right two hundred thousand, fine so they reshoot the ending it tested 10 points better and then boom this is the ending we get in born supremacy so that bridge, though, is the Bourne Ultimatum. This move, this movie actually takes place within the same time frame of the second movie. It's literally within the beginning of the movie, all the way until about really and truly about twenty minutes after the end of the second movie. Is how this movie's time frame takes. They kind of sandwiched it into the events of the second movie by way of what was going on in the six weeks after the first movie. So it was a very clever idea because in the first movie, Jason is discovering what it is that he is and how it's affected him as a human being, despite what the program was supposed to make him become. And he has a realization that he doesn't want to do this anymore. At the end of the first one. 
by the end of the second one, and I and I hope that you know I keep saying I'm not going to spoil these movies, but hopefully you're watching these movies and then coming to the reviews because I'm kind of fucking up the endings of the previous movie. So at the end of the second movie, as Tim was just saying, that he now he's getting to the how and the why he was involved in the program that he was involved with. Here in the third movie, he's more or less getting the answers to those questions. And he does it in terms of a way of saying, you know, I'm going to find the answers. And when I get the answers, I'm going to decide my fate, not anyone else. Should he succeed in getting the answers that he wants? So in terms of the framework of this movie and how they fit the story in, I thought it was a phenomenal idea. Also, I really, really enjoyed... um the play, the the interplay between all the characters, I thought the introduction of Albert Finney was phenomenal. Um, it was just it was just the right part, um, and he brought just he had just the kind of gravitas that this part needed, so that even though it was a small role, it proved to be pivotal, not necessarily in the movie itself, but in the in the what you would think would be the closing arc of a trilogy that explains that that gives Jason the an, the answers that he needs and of course by this time we even learn we have even learned what his real name is which is David is Webb that? David Webb thank you yes so he's even learned his real name by this point now the only issues with this film, I would say, are that in trying to be so clever um, with the pacing, it was actually very confusing because they don't make it clear what the timeline of the film is. You have to put that together yourself because when you see how the second film plays out, especially in terms of what happens in Moscow... Um, he, and, and then how it ends versus where it picks up, you're, you're left kind of lost until you put it together. And then you spend more time focusing on, well, when does it catch back up again? Once it does that, and it gives you a very satisfactory conclusion, you're back on track. Unfortunately, it takes better parts of three-fourths of the film because I look at them mostly as like a three-act play, but because this is the conclusion, this is the this is theoretically supposed to be the closing of a trilogy, this one plays out more in a four-act style. But you spend the first three acts trying to figure out where the timeline is. Um, it's still good. It's just I think that they could have been a lot more clear about the direction that this story itself was supposed to take so that you're not left trying to fill in gaps unnecessarily. It's still satisfying in its conclusion, I thought, um, but I really just wish that timeline had been better implemented. Um, but definitely a step up from the previous film. I give this one four out of five. What do you got there, Tim? Yeah, the shaky camera takes a back seat in this one. Uh, I really liked how this was a direct continuation of Born Supremacy because it felt like it was a story that needed to continue on and to wrap up. 
So not only was it, I mean, for me going back and rewatching them, I was able to pick up on more stuff and it felt like I was watching a full on nearly four hour long movie and it was great. And if it was four hours long, I still think it might've actually worked. I felt that this movie was the best of all the movies. Uh, it's the more most complete. You cannot watch this one without watching the first two. Actually, you cannot watch this one without at least watching Born Supremacy. And the movie works best if you've only if you haven't seen it before. So please, I hope if you've never seen this movie, you're not listening to our reviews of it because the ending moment, the final moment of actually all these movies, when that great Moby song comes up, I forget what it's called, but it's also called Jason Bourne. Um, it has it's a very distinct uh, it has a very distinct kind of tune to it, and it's a great ending to every single one of these movies because it's just kind of like a ah feeling, you know. It's a very uplifting because you know what's going to happen with the characters and what's I, I don't know. I'm trying to be as blasé as possible without spoiling it. But again, you have to watch this one without knowing exactly what's going to happen. So you don't know what's going to happen at the end of the film. Actually, I say that now, but since you already know that Matt Damon is returning with Jason Bourne, you kind of already know that his character doesn't die at the end of this movie. So I guess spoilers are fair game now uh, when it comes to the death of Jason Bourne. But I really liked, when I went and saw this movie, I thought he died at the end. At the end, once he finds out what happened to him, why he couldn't remember stuff, like why they were after him, what Treadstone and Iron, Black Iron Man, whatever it was called, Blackstone was. Once he made all those conclusions, and all the reasoning was clarified, he gets shot, and he falls into a river. And he's laying there, and you think he's dead. And then at the very end, you find out he's not when the Moby song comes on and you see his silhouette in the in the water and you see him suddenly start swimming in that scene in the movie. It was such a great feeling because his character that you were rooting for since the born identity that you've kind of developed some kind of relationship with because all these movies are very good and well paced out. You didn't want him to see him not survive at the very end it was just gonna be not necessarily heartbreaking but just like oh god no god i hope not i hope you know i hope he can continue on and actually be happy with his life and that's kind of what happens in a way so the movie was very effective i think it was a great way to cap off this trilogy despite some of the issues i think some of a couple little tiny story elements and pacing issues I did give this movie 4.5 out of 5. I thought Albert Finney's character as the scientist was, as the chief science officer, was a little bit, not necessarily shoehorned in, but it felt a little off-kilter. But 4.5 out of 5, best one of the bunch for sure. Right on. Oh, and that uh, song is Extreme Ways by Moby. For anyone who wanted to know all right so moving into 2012's the born legacy all right so we have already had the born identity the born supremacy and the born ultimatum now we have the born legacy so this one um is 2012 and uh they very very wisely the whole point of this one now um tony gilroy actually directs this and 
he made it a point because they uh, Universal did not initially plan for anything beyond the original trilogy, uh, which is why the trilogy closes out with Bourne basically getting his answers and going on doing whatever. Um, the the thing is though is that Tony Gilroy was like, oh, we can still do something with this. There's and again, there's all those other novels, um, and the idea was is that. This one would have nothing to do with Bourne in terms of uh, replacing Bourne, trying to do something, get put a new name in there, and thing. No, this was going to be its own story, but it just ties into um, Jason Bourne's story as it kind of parallels what was happening to him in the events of the last two movies. Um, so there's lots of footage, uh, like found footage kind of stuff or news footage kinds of things that feature Joan Allen, a little bit of Albert Finney again in this one as well. Uh, but it basically follows, um, uh, oh, good Lord, Jeremy Renner, because it stars Jeremy Renner, Rachel Weiss, Edward Norton, Albert Finney, Joan Allen, Stacey Keach, Oscar Isaac, and Scott Glenn. And what we're seeing at this point now is... The full-fledged idea that you just can't underestimate these agents enough. We know what's best. We know how to get them. We know we would never create a weapon that we don't know how to control. But as the first three movies have already shown, yes, you can, yes, you will, and yes, you did. So what the actual shit, it's really starting to wear at this point. The one thing that this movie does, though, is that it really showcases a new way to tell this story. And so they use Jeremy Renner's character, who is in Echelon, I think. Is that the right one? No, Outcome. He's an Outcome, all right? Because, they've see, they've already gone through all these different ones. It was Treadstone, then it was Blackbriar, then it was Echelon, then it was Outcome. And, you know, they have all these different stupid programs because apparently the CIA just never learns. Um, and so Jeremy Renner's an Outcome agent. And because of all of the events in the, at the end of the second movie and, and basically the third movie that's taking place at the same time, with things that have been released to the press and with Joan Allen making statements and stuff, or her character... Um, they were like, oh, well, shit, we just take the data, we scrap all the other stuff, and then we wait a while before it cools down, and then we start again with all of the data that we've had. And so um, that means they have to kill all of the outcome agents. And guess who doesn't get killed? Jeremy Renner's character. And, of course, this is all paralleling, and so he's done some things, and you kind of see Jason's Bourne name, Jason Bourne's name pop up. You see Jason Bourne's picture pop up. Uh, Matt Damon never makes an appearance. And so I really enjoyed that aspect of it. I thought it was a very unique way to fit in the universe, be in the mythos, exist at the same time, but tell its own story. I, it was just fantastic. The only The only thing that really brings this movie down for me... Um, is twofold. One, even though you already know the story, they need to include reasons why things happen. So, for example, we have uh, Rachel Weiss. Uh, her character is the um, uh, doctor. One of the who, doctor who happens to know Jeremy Renner's character. He play he plays Aaron Cross or Outcome. Uh, Outcome number five, agent, whatever. Um, 
And at the facility, uh, Rachel Weiss's character of Dr. Mark Shearing works with another guy named Dr. Donald Folte, played by uh, Zielko Ivanek. Um, and I believe you might recognize him from Damages. Um, so, from the TV sh- series Damages with Glenn Close. So anyways, um, so he ends up, he actually works for the CIA or whatever, and he ends up, you know, trying to clean house and shooting everybody up and killing all the doctors and stuff. And except, of course, Marta ends up getting out, um, more or less, and he has to shoot himself. But they don't explain how or why that is. They just, you just expected to accept that it is. And they do that several times in the movie, and it's always surrounding Rachel Weiss's arc and her character. And more to the point, I just wasn't really buying Rachel Weiss's character at all. Now, she's not a bad actress or anything. I'm not trying to say that she's that it was poor acting. Or poor, I just didn't buy into the way they... It, 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 I just did not buy into her characterization. And that, and that's all. Um, she's a fine actress, but that when you contrast it with the way that Jeremy Renner was portraying his character, and you buy into that, and you're enjoying that, um, you're just kind of left with, then eh, maybe maybe she could die. I mean, we've killed off some other chicks in the past, right? Uh, you know, um, alas, that's not to be. So this was designed to kick off a new kind of a sideways franchise. Unfortunately. The movie, while it was more or less a financial success, it wasn't what they were hoping for it to be. And I can see why. It was a fun side project. I I enjoyed the way that they put it into the mythos. But there just wasn't enough there for me to um, keep it afloat. Um, It has kind of the ambiguous ending we've come to expect from the kickoff of a Bourne-style movie. But it doesn't really leave you asking for more, especially from Aaron Cross, which is disappointing because he was such a good character. I do, however, give this one 3.5 out of 5. Uh, it was enjoyable, but um, and not a bad start for something that they were going off of. But, yeah. What do you got there, Tim? See, I thought this movie was entertaining very much like how Jack Ryan Shadow Recruit was very entertaining. Jack Ryan Shadow Recruit, of course, is the Jack Ryan movie with Chris Pine and Kenneth Branagh was the bad guy. Kenneth Branagh also directed it. It was entertaining like how that movie was entertaining to where like it's not like the movies that came before it, but it it still kind of captures the same feeling. The action in The Bourne Legacy is fun and not as taxing to watch. For example, it's directed by Tony Gilroy, who wrote all the movies, including this one. So it's shot without the shaky camera. It's shot with the fluid uh, camera work, like in The Bourne Identity. But it still had the same fun action scenes where, you know, it wasn't all just crazy shoot-em-ups. It was actually Jeremy Renner fighting these guys. And there are these great set pieces and these great moments, not just with the action, but with Jeremy Renner's character, for instance... Uh, not the. I thought the very opening, like the first like twenty seconds, was kind of dumb since that was all like really shitty blue screen. But there's this whole kind of segment where he meets another fellow agent played by Oscar Isaac's, and that whole segment was great. And that's not really action, but it's, it's great tense moments because you really don't know if one of them is there to screw the other over, and 
neither of them really knows that the other one is there to screw the other agent over. So it's really, it's kind of fun. And this movie does a lot of really fun things like that that do not involve crazy shootouts. Uh, there's a great, really tense action-y type of fight scene when Jeremy Renner is trying to save Rachel Wise in her house when she's starting to become implicated in all this stuff. It's a great shot, especially the segment when she's in the hospital and the doctor has the gun. He's going around shooting people and she's trying to hide from them. Great tension in this movie because it's directed by such a great writer. And he did a great job. He actually, Tony Gilroy directed the surprisingly good Michael Clayton from 2007, which was huge at the box office and with critics then. He also did, I think, Duplicity was the name of the movie. That was his follow-up movie with Clive Owen and Julia Roberts. So he's actually directed a few movies before. It's not as good as Michael Clayton, but he did a lot of things right. But unfortunately, I I don't necessarily know if it was his fault because the writing is so good and he is a very competent director, but there were just little things like, so this is taking place alongside Supremacy and Ultimatum, but the technology is very much 2012. They're using flat screen computers, the special surveillance software is super modern and super high tech which if you watch the 2004 2002 movies or the 2007 movies it's it it was still a little bit more believable so this movie was a little bit more believable compared to jason bourne the next film but it was kind of getting into nuking the fridge territory when it came to its tech and the progression of the agents tracking Jeremy Renner down, their progression in finding him. It was just became a little bit more fluff than the really nitty-grittiness that the Bourne movies had uh, when it came to their tech and how he was being hunted down. So this movie had a little bit, a lot of little things like that that bugged me. All the great action stuff and all the great tense and edge-of-your-seat moments that happen at the first half of the movie took a back seat in the second half of the movie, except, I guess, the main fight scene, chase scene at the end through the alleyways was really cool and, and very much well done. They were trying to throw more story in, it felt like, to really wrap up this character or really to give his character more meat, maybe, so that eventually something could set up the next movie. And on top of all this, it also felt like they were relying a little too much on footage from the Bourne Supremacy and the Bourne Ultimatum, and they were relying a little too much on the character of Jason Bourne himself. Kick back, watch the movie, have a good time, eat some popcorn... And that's really all you can ask from this movie. It's not, again, it's not as smart as Supremacy or Ultimatum, but still very good. Born Legacy, 3.5 out of 5 as well. All right. Well, then last, but... Oh, what, who am I kidding? Last and least, we have 2016's Jason Bourne. This is a straight-up American thriller film directed by Paul Greengra- Greengrass. Uh, also written by Greengrass. And... um Christopher Rouse as well, who happened to be the editor of the movie. Uh, this one stars Matt Damon, Julia Stiles, Alicia Vikander, Vincent Cassell, um, Riz Ahmed, and Tommy Lee Jones. Now, okay, so... Um, by this point, there's really no reason uh, for Jason Bourne to be intrigued by anything, but of course... Um, uh, Julia Stiles has kind of gone dark at this point as well in the series, and she is working for another hacking group and comes across some stuff in the CIA. 
um, that relates to Jason Bourne's dad. And, oh, his dad was the reason why he ended up being in there. I don't know. It was a whole bunch of bullshit. Um, and, of course, once again, as soon as somebody hears Jason Bourne, kill Jason Bourne. You know, after 16 years, four, I'm sorry, 15 years, maybe, just maybe, leave him the fuck alone. If you hear Jason Bourne, just be like, fuck it. You know what? Just hope he doesn't come here. That's all we should do. Just hope he doesn't come here. But, no, Tommy Lee Jones is in charge. And for some reason, he's somehow afraid of Jason Bourne and connected to him. And, of course, he's old and grizzled, so he would have been around for this whole thing, right? Alicia Vikander is kind of his protege, his up-and-comer. And she's kind of like, well, you know, maybe we should take a different look at this. And, of course, this ties into um, privacy and technology and freedom and all of that kind of stuff by way of uh, Facebook guy, which is Dream, they call it... Uh, uh, Oh, what's his name? Dream something? Uh, dream Dream Dick? Deep Dream. Deep oh. Dream. Deep Dream, yeah. Which is Aaron Kalur, who's played by Riz Ahmed. Um, and it's a social media thing. It's supposed to be like Facebook or Twitter or some shit. And, uh, of course, this is the back dealing, right, of how they gather, all how the NSA gets their back door and all this kind of shit. So these two simultaneous plots all converge in Vegas, where it all comes down to find to Jason Bourne finds out what exactly his dad has to do with why he is who he is and how he is there. Um, Julia Stiles finally bites it, so we, we we don't have to worry about her anymore. And um, yeah, so and then and hopefully and then of course the tale that should have been come to that should have come to a close back in two thousand seven. Um, now, once again, comes to a close. I'm not going to spoil the actual ending of it in its entirety. Just know that once again, once again, CIA never learns. CIA can't help it, you know. Then and they have to control Bourne, and Bourne is the number one guy. You are my number one guy, right? So um, it's just it's tired. It's old after four films. I watched all the other films yesterday. I watched them all. I mean, one after the other. Watched the first four movies. Uh, took better part of six hours or so to watch all four of those movies. And I was already kind of bored. And this one bored me. Now, it's not a bad movie. It's just literally the same thing again cia doesn't learn they keep making new programs jason bourne's in the mix he has to he, they want to kill him just because and he ends up kicking ass and taking names i really hope they're done three stars barely done if they ask me if i want to see another one i'll just say i'll think about it i'm sorry let me think about it Wow. Three. I'm surprised you even gave this movie three. I mean, barely, dude. Seriously, barely. Yeah, this is a (laughs) 1.75 out of five. There are aspects of the movie that I did enjoy, but they didn't come until the the, pretty much the tail end of the movie. Uh, I, I tweeted this out right after I saw this movie. The best part of Jason Bourne is Moby. Moby as in the ending song. So... That was the best part of the movie, is that that ending hook with that song. 
And it wasn't because that I knew the movie was over. It's just because I really love that fucking song. And it worked. Again, it got me. It got me. One of the big things that bugged me about this movie is that they kept referencing a lot of contemporary NSA security issue breaches, you know, like Snowden. Like, oh man, this is this is bad. Oh, we really, how, how bad is it? Pretty bad. It could be worse than Snowden. Oh my god. Oh, you know, when they said that, that meant nothing to me. I couldn't care less. Couldn't care less. Like, And so, and, and, and unfortunately, this movie keeps referencing all these specific things like Snowden and not necessarily Snowden, but mainly like, you know, the government being breached and hacked and how we got to keep it secret because if it gets out, people will hate us. People will not like us. It'll completely ruin us. And it bothered me so much is because none of the other Bourne movies relied on anything like this. They didn't reference terrorists. They didn't reference Bin Laden. You know, they didn't have to elevate the audience's emotion to terrorist threat status. You know, at least a, a terrorist that we could all in some way relate to. They didn't mention, for The Born Identity coming out in 2002, they didn't mention the World Trade Center. They didn't mention the, anything like that. Same with the Born Supremacy, same with the Born Ultimatum. Of course, they talk about terrorism and they mention terrorism, but they never make direct references. And it's tricky with one of the, with a movie like this to do such a thing because you run the risk of it being hammy, being forced, of them just referencing this this stuff just to create a mood or just to create a tense atmosphere so that the audience, again, has something to grasp onto and in a way relate to because, oh, when we hear Snowden, at least some of us, when we hear Snowden, we just don't like the guy. And, oh, it's just frightening hearing about the NSA getting hacked. Oh, it's just scary. And the movie didn't need that because it relied on it so damn much. Well, maybe it did need it because it was relying it, but it shouldn't have needed it. Fun fact, Matt Damon only has 25 lines of dialogue in this movie, and you can tell, because he is angry, he is brooding, he is just upset, and he honestly just doesn't look like he wanted to be in the movie. The producer, one of the producers or execs from Universal, basically said that if, as long as Matt Damon and Paul Greengrass agree to make these movies, they will keep making Bourne movies. And I think the same guy, or these same people, the executives or producers, just kept hassling both Matt Damon and Paul Greengrass to make a movie. They just felt obligated to make a movie, and it just looked like they were obligated to, because the movie is in no way on the same level as the other films. Now, do people like this movie? Yes. When the movie was over, people clapped. People cheered. People enjoyed it. So that's great. If you're not as... I don't think I'm being critical, but it also could be attested that I watched all these kind of back-to-back, that I I was able to pick out some of this stuff a little bit easier, because it's a lot of the same. In fact, I've never seen Jason Bourne walk more, (laughs) fast walk more, in any other Bourne movie so yeah, I mean, it's, again, it's just more of the same. None of the action is compelling. Even the even the car chase scene, it's just a bunch of quick cuts and camera movement and just crazy over the top action. That's that's the thing. The action was more over the top. The opening car chase scene, or the, I guess it was a motorcycle chase scene, kind of at the beginning of the movie, just felt a little bit ridiculous. It didn't feel like they were trying to go for practical car chasing. You know, it felt more like stunty and more Hollywood 
action-driven. Really what it comes down to is that I we all know Captain, uh, Captain Greengrass. <laughs> we all know that Paul Greengrass can make great, effective movies. Since he made The Bourne Ultimatum, he's he did Captain Phillips. And that is a fantastic movie. So watching this after seeing Captain Phillips... It was just a big disappointment. A big disappointment. So 1.75 out of 5 Jason Bourne. It just could have and should have been so much better. Nothing is really resolved. The whole dad thing was hokey. Like, why'd you have to go the dad route? You had to go the father route. You had to. But luckily, Tommy Lee Jones is in some way a saving grace. I thoroughly enjoyed him in this movie, so... Kudos, Tommy Lee. Kudos to you. 1.75 out of 5, Jason Bourne. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the movies. And next week's movies are going to be Suicide Squad and The Little Prince. And I think, without further ado, that will bring us to the spiel, will it not, sir? Spiel on! And the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLSCast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at nitwit12345 you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio you can even track down Tim on Twitter and follow him if that is your heart's desire but until next week this is Matt saying that thanks to Julia Stiles I get to say this I met this homeless man who had never owned a shirt in his life he had taken his pants and worn them as a shirt and I thought it was so creative he was liberated from the conventions of fashion Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>